0: You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Bowel cancer is now Australia's number one cancer killer for people aged 25 to 44. It's affecting more and more young people, and yet there's still a misconception that bowel cancer is an old man's disease. Young people are being dismissed by their health professionals as being far too young to have bowel cancer. Today's guest on the Bottom Line podcast was just 33 when she was diagnosed with stage two bowel cancer. Jessica Kidd, a journalist with the ABC for 13 years and newly appointed Bowel Cancer Australia ambassador, joins me today to talk about her diagnosis and why she's so passionate about raising awareness around the disease. welcome to the bottom line podcast jess thanks steph for having me
1: and for giving me the opportunity to talk about this it touches so many people and i think it's really important to have this discussion
0: it does it does and it's so wonderful to have you on board as i said as an ambassador for bowel cancer australia now you were just 33 when you were diagnosed you're a brand new mum so many people that we See, come through Bowel Cancer Australia and on forums are young. Can you talk us through your diagnosis and what symptoms you had in the lead up?
1: Yeah, I I was 33 and my son was 15 months old when I was diagnosed formally, but he was probably nine or 10 months old when I noticed my first symptoms. I had the classic symptom of blood in my poo. And, you know, when it happens once or twice, you think, "Oh, oh, no, nothing to worry about but it just kept happening. And I raised it with my GP when my son was, as I said, around nine or 10 months old. And she said, oh, look, you know, you've had a baby reasonably recently. You had hemorrhoids. It's pretty normal. Nothing to be concerned about. If it persists, come back and see me. Okay. So I went away feeling fairly reassured and let's be frank. It's not the easiest topic to raise with your GP. No one really wants to talk about finding blood in their poo. And no, you're no. A bit, you're a bit embarrassed about it. So, okay, I was reassured. I went away. I was a new mother. I was going back into work at that point. I had a promotion at work. I was trying to prove I could do it all and be everything and hit the ground running, and I just didn't find time to go back to the GP. I I kick myself about this in hindsight because I went 100 times for my son who got every daycare illness under the sun. I didn't find 15 minutes in a day to say, hey, this has not resolved. And in fact, I see blood every time I go to the toilet now. And I I can't really say what it was that spurred me to actually go back to the GP, but it, it just kept happening. And I think I had one week where Every time I saw blood, I was like, no, this is not normal. You cannot ignore this. I went back to the GP and she said, look, oh, yeah, we need to check it out. I'm still not concerned, but it doesn't hurt to check it out. I waited a few weeks to get into a colorectal surgeon. The colorectal surgeon said the same thing. Look, it's not unusual, but it doesn't hurt to do a colonoscopy and check it out. So I was booked in for my colonoscopy thinking, okay, well, Tick that box, you know, best to get everything checked, but nothing will be wrong. And when the colorectal surgeon came to see me after the colonoscopy and told me that she found a two centimeter tumor, I was just dumbfounded, just completely dumbfounded. I expected her to tell me that she found some hemorrhoids.
0: Hmm. this sounds all too familiar (laughs) it's exactly what I did it's something that happens particularly with women we have such a busy life and we when we have children we're managing a household and a family and we put ourselves last don't we absolutely what ran through your mind when you were diagnosed
1: those days after I was diagnosed were absolute hell for me. Honestly, I can't think of another way to describe it. I was, my, my son was still so young, 15 months old is really still a baby. And I was rocking him to sleep every night. And the thought that kept going through my head was, am I going to be around long enough for him to remember who I am? Because at 15 months, he is not going to remember who I am. And because it, it was a two week period between being diagnosed with cancer and being formally staged and and having a prognosis that we could work towards.
0: Which is a long time in a a cancer diagnosis. (laughs) Yes, Uh, It mightn't seem like that normally, but two weeks is an eternity.
1: It's an eternity when you're faced with your mortality and asking questions around whether your children will remember who you are. And that mental weight was enormous. And I just kept kicking myself. Why didn't I prioritize going to the doctor earlier? Because it was about four or five months that I had blood. I knew it was there. I knew it wasn't normal. And I didn't go back to the doctor. Why didn't I go? Why couldn't I find 15 minutes to check that I was okay? And then confronted with this diagnosis, I just thought, what if My reluctance to go back to the doctor is the difference between me being okay and me being either a sick mother, my son only remembering me as a sick mum, or not being here for my son. And when you're a new mum, you know, children, babies are hard. They don't sleep. They don't eat. uh, They have health problems. My son had a few challenges and I, I, I felt like I fought so hard for him. And we were finally, you know, you know, I was coming into my own as a mother and finally finding my feet and feeling confident. And then to, to have to face the prospect of not being there, I was like, who is going to fight for my son if I'm not here? And so that was, that was the point, that thought that I had in my head as I was rocking him to sleep. I was like, no, whatever it is, I'm going to have to tackle it because I'm my son's strongest advocate and I need to be here for him. So he really was my, you know, little, shining light and galvanizing force to say whatever I have to face I will face because I need to be here
0: mm. we really need to be advocates for our own health and we need to be healthy so we can look after our family
1: that's a hundred percent i come across so many young women who have gone through similar diagnoses with children or it's preventing them from having children and i just think you know I have a role to play in this this is such an unfair thing for people to have to go through if I can do anything to help other people know the signs and know what they need to do then I need to do it it is important that we speak up because I mentioned my symptoms to several doctors during my pregnancy I actually had symptoms that I think might have indicated that I had a tumor when I was pregnant and I mentioned it and it kind of got ignored oh it's pretty normal and I don't think it was.
0: And what's your advice then for health professionals that do dismiss symptoms? Because we hear this time and time again. You and I are not um, the exception here. It happens consistently. What, what's your thoughts and, and what would you like to say to the health professionals?
1: What I would like to say is you cannot dismiss young women coming to you with symptoms simply because they are young women and you can explain it away as a heavy period or something that happens to your body as a result of pregnancy and childbirth. That's not enough. I had chronic long-term iron deficiency anemia and it was not explained by anything other than, oh, it's probably heavy periods. When I went to my GP, my baby was 9 or 10 months old. So to have new symptoms... Mm and explaining them as a result of childbirth that had happened nine or ten months earlier, it's not its not really appropriate. No, no. It, it should have been more urgent. And she's not the only doctor who, who said, oh, your symptoms are normal, they're common, nothing to worry about.
0: That's right. You had, there was the two week wait. What discussions did you have with your surgeon around surgery? I know you didn't end up having chemotherapy and radiation because you're stage two, but do you want to talk us through that? Mm.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when my colorectal surgeon, um, she obviously took a biopsy during the colonoscopy that came back as cancerous uh, and that that's the initial diagnosis. So I went for a staging CT scan after that and that ruled out stage four and because I didn't at that stage need chemotherapy or anything there wasn't any discussion about fertility preservation so it it was really a very straightforward this is the surgery that we will do these are the risks of this surgery this is what we hope to get as a result of this surgery and then the results of the uh, pathology testing on the tumor will inform whether we need to do any further treatment after that.
0: The physical impact post-surgery can you talk us what your recovery was like and probably now after a few years how how it's panned out
1: yeah. So the immediate uh, recovery from surgery was was the pain element of it. It is quite an extensive surgery. So I ended up with seven incisions across the middle of my abdomen, which is quite extensive, five days in hospital. And then I was allowed to go home and I went home to a 15 month old baby who didn't understand why I couldn't mm-hmm. pick him up and give him cuddles. So, so that was quite hard. What I managed to do was I actually put a cushion, like a couch cushion over my stomach, and then I could sit down and give him a cuddle like that, and that kind of worked. But I couldn't pick him up. I couldn't rock him to sleep. So we had a really hard couple of weeks because he, he was such a bad sleeper as a baby, he was used to being rocked to sleep every night, and all of a sudden I couldn't
0: couldn't rock him to sleep. so. But also for you, Jess, having come out of surgery, and as you say, it's a point of you don't really know what lays ahead for you in terms of mortality. You want to give him as many cuddles as you possibly can. Oh,
1: absolutely. So we actually compromised because I could walk, sort of. I would kneel down onto the floor and give him a cuddle kneeling down on the floor. And that's how we managed that for quite a few weeks after my surgery, because I couldn't lift him for a long time. I wasn't allowed to lift for the six weeks after surgery. And then even then it was painful. The the other sort of uh, side to recovery was dealing with a shortened bowel um, and the impacts that that has. I think overall, I've been quite lucky. I've certainly got people that I know who have had bowel resections who have had much bigger impacts. But being one of the lucky ones still means that you know five going to the toilet five times a day is normal, and on a bad day it can be up to ten times, or I lose count. Mm-hmm every meal that you eat, everything that you eat, you have to think, hmm, is this going to impact me? Is this going to make me sick for the next two days? Or is this going to be okay? I used to love food. I just, I love, well, I still do love food, but unfortunately having a Bowery section has taken a lot of the joy out of going and exploring new foods because you always have to think, hmm, am I going to pay for this for the rest of the week if I eat this? What important events do I have on this week and can I afford to eat (laughs) this spicy curry right now? (laughs) I did experience ongoing uh, pain as a result of that surgery. So I would say it was 10 weeks before I was pain free. And I'm talking pain, like strong pain that limits your activity. And then beyond that 10 week mark, I would say that it was six months before I was comfortable and could do a whole day's walking or working without feeling discomfort and pain at my um, incision sites.
0: At what point did you go back to work, Jess? I went back to work after five months, and
1: I had a, a, a nice sort of staged introduction to work. Um, I have a, a very good workplace in the sense that we have lots of policies around returning to work after illness,
0: unlike where I was, where I was made redundant in the middle of chemotherapy, which was oh so joyous, mm. and that was a media organisation too. <laughs> yes, I've definitely heard a lot of people
1: been impacted unfairly because of treatment. Um, so I suppose I was lucky. Um, I. What what is interesting and what I have found is that when you look well, people think you're well and I don't want to be morose and say I'm very unwell because I'm not, but I do have a daily ongoing physical impact from surgery that I will probably have to deal with for the rest of my life. I'm three years post-surgery and I have had a big improvement over that three years, but I still... Have physical ongoing symptoms that I deal with multiple times a day, and it's it's very hard to convey that to people. Even even my closest family sometimes just don't really get why I'm a bit grumpy. I'm like, oh, I, I just don't feel well, <laughs> you know. And if you've had a, a bad
0: day on the toilet, it can affect the rest of your day. And and you're a journalist, so you could be out on the road. There are a number of areas that it could impact you professionally as well
1: that's that's right and conveying that to your uh, colleagues or to family is quite hard without going into a lot of graphic detail mm. that people don't necessarily want to hear and i think that's really misunderstood and so that's one of the things that you you do have to kind of just keep gently reminding people going forward but at the same time you you do have to make a decision to live in spite of the symptoms and you know, just to, to talk about my kids for a second, you know, I, I still want to be an active, responsive, involved mother, even when I'm not feeling well. And you do have to push through it to a point. So people see you coping and just getting on with life and they think you're fine. And to touch on that also, uh, the mental recovery with a cancer diagnosis. I, I was lucky in the sense that I really technically was only a cancer patient for two weeks between diagnosis and surgery, and then I was cancer-free. Two weeks. Well, what, what am I worried about? What's the big deal, Jess? Why is this still affecting you? And it's affecting me because even though it was a short period of time, I still had to go through the mental hoops of confronting a serious potentially life-threatening illness, what that meant for myself, what that meant for my family, what that meant for my career, what that meant for my life going forward, what that meant in terms of any treatment that
0: I might need. And moving forward, I know you've just had a colonoscopy and your scans. It's that ongoing anxiety not knowing if it's going to come back.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you, I so I've just hit three years, but I've spent the last three years going, is this going to come back? will i have to face the prospect of chemotherapy a recurrence spreading and people don't really get that unless they've been through that process themselves right and all my friends ask but but you're well now I'm like yes i'm as well as my last scan indicated and i'm not prepared to jinx myself beyond that <laughs> no <laughs> no i'm as yes i'm as well as the last scan indicated i am which is is good
0: for the moment So did you have any strategies? I wanted to touch on that emotional aspect because I think that's a really important factor is that there, I saw a psychologist and it was probably one of the most important things I did from a support perspective for me and to look after myself. What things did you do to help you through?
1: I also saw a psychologist. I didn't see a psychologist immediately after diagnosis. It was interesting for me. I actually started to see a psychologist as I was physically recovering from the pain of surgery and starting to face the idea of going back to work and kind of re-entering life again. And I was getting a very strong emotional reaction every time I picked up the phone to call work and to start that process of going back. And I thought, hang on, no, it's not normal to be crying when I'm thinking about calling people I've worked alongside for 10 plus years. These are friends of mine. I shouldn't have this stress and emotional reaction to this. What's going on here? And so I did unpack that with a psychologist. And for me personally, I think it was that work for me was quite all encompassing. And not that I'm blaming work for my diagnosis, but I'm certainly blaming my attitude to my work for why I put off going to the doctor when I had those symptoms. And I thought, I need to reassess how I approach work but other things in life so that I don't, so that my priorities are in the right order because I can't let a situation happen again where something else is too important and I can't, I don't have time to attend to this health concern of mine that could potentially unravel my entire family and affect my children for the rest of their lives. I can't let that situation happen again. So I think that is what mentally was going on for me at the time. And that was really valuable to unpack that with that psychologist. She was great. And she really just gave me some really helpful strategies as I then approached work to go back to work and map out my return to work plan. And so I'm still on that return to work plan where I discussed the, the daily symptoms that I have that I'm dealing with. Um, and I said, look, I, I can't be an on-the-road reporter, on you know, away from the office at a crime scene or a bushfire for 12 hours a day no. with no toilets. I can't do that anymore, but I'm still my me. I've still got my brain. I've still got all my skills. So now I'm largely office-based, but I still do everything in that office environment. I just have access to a bathroom when I need it and I've got a shift pattern uh, to the week and a working structure that allows me time to prioritize appointments if I need them and it allows me time to be with my children so I just I spent a lot of time working out what I needed how I needed to structure my work and my life my family life my personal life so that I could do everything and still take care of myself
0: I want to go back to the fertility issue because we hear it time and time again young women like yourself or myself substantially you know a long much longer time ago than you but who've just had a baby or they're pregnant and their symptoms are dismissed by health professionals what's your advice for women in this situation and then I want to chat to you about fertility because I know you went on to have a second child need. So probably the first question, what's your advice for women in your situation first? My advice is that you need to put your health first.
1: You, and this is especially true of women with children because we so easily let us put ourselves last. You cannot be the captain of the ship. You cannot be there for your family if you are ill if if your life is at risk because of a health condition. So you need to prioritise yourself because prioritising yourself is prioritising your children. Children do not do well without their mums. They need their mothers, unfortunately. It's it's a, a fact of biology and life. So if you are unwell, you cannot give your children everything. Prioritise yourself. Advocate for yourself. If you are unwell or if you are experiencing symptoms, It's not okay for a doctor to dismiss them as a young mum running a busy household, not getting enough sleep or being a bit iron deficient because you've got periods. That's not appropriate in this day and age with what we know about healthcare and early detection of, of any illness, not just cancer. If you have ongoing symptoms that are impacting your quality of life, you deserve to have them addressed investigated and treated so you need to advocate for yourself and if you are not getting the answers that you need you are you have every right to go and seek a second opinion and tell that second doctor the history that you've had with a previous doctor and why you're seeking a second opinion
0: I want to go back to the fertility as I said you had max prior to Um, your bowel cancer diagnosis, Mm. and then you had Niamh. That's right. Um, From a fertility perspective, um, were you worried that after cancer that you wouldn't be able to fall pregnant with another child? Not initially, I actually was
1: lying in hospital after my bowel resection talking to one of the nurses and I said, there'd be nothing about a bowel resection that would stop me having a baby. And she said, no, I don't think so. Great. Okay. I'm going to have another baby (laughs) because we're actually thinking about starting to try again when I was diagnosed. So it was a shock from that point of view as well. And then I went for my four week post-operative checkup with my colorectal surgeon and The poor man has probably not had that many patients, admittedly, ask this at their (laughs) four-week follow-up. But I said, okay, so when can I have a baby? And he was like, whoa, 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 hang on. You are facing all of these risks and that's when he kind of laid down, no, we are now going to start a process of surveillance where we are monitoring whether you have a recurrence of your cancer in your bowel or any metastases, which would most likely show up in your liver or your lungs. We need to make sure that you can actually tolerate food. You've got a new resection in your bowel. A pregnancy can put that at risk. He said you're, you would be at risk of bowel obstructions in pregnancy from the Uh, growing uterus putting pressure on the bowel he said you would be at risk having a vaginal delivery of a catastrophic tear impacting on your bowel function and you've already got suboptimal bowel function so that would be bad yeah oh he laid it out and I I left that appointment shell-shocked just completely shell-shocked thinking this is over I'm never going to have another baby
0: because that was never discussed prior No. Because you're 33, you know, um, I was 42, you know, probably at the end of my fertility, to be fair, whereas you are smack bang in the middle of the the time of having children. Yes, and
1: and no, it it was never really discussed. Uh, To be fair, I didn't ask the question. As I said earlier, you know, when you're confronting a cancer diagnosis, that's what you need to deal with and things like having another baby really are such a secondary question after that because you're dealing with something that is life-threatening at that point so i didn't ask the question in the first instance and the answer would not have changed my decision to have a bowel resection because you still need to go through treatment Um, but i I did leave that appointment um, and i think my doctor was probably trying to be realistic about what we were potentially facing um we'd only i'd only just come through surgery it it was still very new so he did relax as the months went on Um, but he did finish that appointment by saying look let's get through the first year let's get through the first year first set of scans and see where we end up after that okay i can work to that so i was really working to that one year kind of milestone but um one thing the doctor did say to me was that there was a risk the surgery itself could impact fertility because any abdominal surgery uh, can create adhesions or scar tissue in the abdominal cavity. The risk is that those adhesions stick to structures like the ovaries, the fallopian tubes and the uterus and, and can basically constrict it and impair fertility. So, and it's all in there, right? The uterus is right next to the bowel. So it's, it's a high and I likelihood. Think, I think
0: that's a really important point, Jess, is that you know when you think of fertility and cancer you think ovarian cancer or cervical cancer even breast cancer but you don't think bowel cancer and i think part of it is we still have that stigma that it's an old man's disease but also we forget that the bowel is very closely connected Mm -hmm. to where our reproductive organs are yeah
1: interestingly i'm a journalist so i like to do research I was trying to find an anatomical diagram of the uterus and where it sat next to the bowel, and I was Google imaging and I could not find a single anatomical diagram or, or picture of a non-pregnant uterus and where it sat next to the bowel. They're either all male torsos with obviously no uterus or it's a pregnant woman that shows the uterus extended to the front and all the organs in the back there there wasn't a lot of information for me to access to question whether I could have a baby and whether I should have a baby because of the risks that my surgeon had outlined and um, I went back to my GP and I asked for what's called an AMH test which measures a hormone that gives an indication of ovarian reserve and I had a very low reading of that for my age, which was a surprise because I hadn't had any issues having my first child. And she said this indicates that you don't really want to wait too long to have a baby. She said it's not its not a hard and fast rule but it's a very low reading for your age so you may struggle if you wait too long. Um, because I was in this, you know, Everyone who's been diagnosed with cancer has this five-year kind of window where they are actively monitored for any recurrence the question that me and my husband had was, do we wait five years before we have a baby so that we get that risk window out of the way, or do we take the risk and have a baby sooner? Do we wait three years? Is that less of a risk? Um, I didn't think I had the option of waiting five years because that would have put me in my late 30s. And with a low reading for ovarian reserve, I thought, no, I don't, I don't have that luxury. And I also didn't want such a big age gap between my children. You know, the whole point of having more than one child was so that I wouldn't have an only child. And when you have a big age gap, you essentially have an only child. Um, So for me, it was a question I decided, I decided to go for it. Um, But my husband and I did have the discussion about, well, You know, if we have a baby and I get a recurrence, what happens? If I have metastasized disease and advanced disease, what happens then? Are you prepared to be a single father to two children?
0: Mm. They're the conversations that you have to have.
1: Yes, Mm. yeah. And luckily for me, he's very much across that bridge when we come to it kind of person. So he doesn't dwell too much on heavy issues like that where I do. So he he was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is important. We we want more than one child. Okay, cool. <laughs> I think if you asked him now, <laughs> would he want to be a single parent? He how would old, say no. <laughs> how old Neve now? Neve is now fifteen months. Right. exactly oh, the wow. same age. Yes. Yeah. Um, interestingly, both Max and Neve have their birthdays in April. So I've just hit my three year cancerversary and Neve is exactly the same age as Max was. And I was putting her to sleep last night rocking her to sleep again because <laughs> she's not a good sleeper. And I actually started crying because I I now have that perspective of time and I can see how little she is and how dependent she is and just how big an impact it would have had on Max at the time. And uh, it was unavoidable, obviously, but to be away from max for five whole days when he was a baby with I'd never spent any time apart from him before and and even now he's four (laughs) that's the longest time I've spent away from him I haven't spent any other time away from him except for those five days but yeah I looking at Neve now I can see it had an impact on him
0: it's so wonderful that you are able to have Neve. Um, yes, yeah. She and her name
1: means um, her her first name and middle name combined mean radiant blessing, and oh. she is absolutely that. I just every day I just think, wow.
0: <laughs> Jess, you know, you've been so wonderful in sharing your experience with us today. I am going to ask you three very quick questions. I like to ask all our interview. Uh, ease at the end of the podcast, what three things would you like people to take away from today's podcast?
1: I would like people to know they're normal and then know what's not normal and act on it. So you do have to check your poo every time you go to the toilet. And if you have a change in your bowel habit, if you see blood, if there is anything unusual, you need to know that it's happening so that you can act on it. So know you're normal and know what's n- what's not normal. Secondly, once you know what's not normal, advocate for yourself and get the answers that you need. So when you see that change and it's a persistent change, you then need to make sure that you get that change investigated by your doctors and don't let them tell you that you're too young to have bowel cancer or any other Condition that may or may not be present. And then the third thing I would say is that you are allowed to prioritize yourself. And it's not a selfish thing to do to prioritize yourself. And when I say prioritize, I mean prioritize your health. And if you are unwell or you have concerning symptoms, getting them checked out, but also prioritizing your mental health and your priorities in life. Because at the end of the day, when, pardon my language, but when the shit hits the fan and you're confronting a life changing diagnosis, you only have yourself to answer to. And you need to be able to tell yourself that you did everything that you could. You saw the doctor as early as you could to get those symptoms investigated. You prioritized your children and their well being by looking after yourself and looking after them cause at the end of the day, you are the only person you have to live with, right? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. are the only person who is going to look after you. You are the only person who is going to make sure that you are okay. So when I say prioritize yourself, that's what I mean. I mean, looking after yourself.
0: Such wonderful advice, such sage advice. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me today, Jess, but also for your passion around sharing your story and the awareness for bowel cancer. And thank you for joining me on the Bottom Line podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.